Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. To me, you need to repent. And this is an important characteristic of Mark. We're going to see Mark has less teaching, more action. Mark is, is very, very, I was telling somebody uh, the other day, Mark, you need to think of as like the summer popcorn flick action blockbuster where everything's about action. There's like things going on all the time. That's the way the gospel of Mark is. In fact, one of the things that you will see, and this word is used uh, one time in our passage today, I believe, but there, there's a Greek word, not important for you to remember, but it's the word uthus, which means immediately. And it's used 59 times in the New Testament in total. 42 of those are in the gospel of Mark. 42 of the 59 are in this one book. Mark is a book where it's constantly and immediately this happened and immediately that happened. He's trying to create a sense of movement, a sense of action. And so today we're going to look how he begins the story with action again, not with a long genealogy or philosophical introduction, but rather this enigmatic character, John the Baptist, in the wilderness shouting for the people to hear the word of the Lord. So who is John? What's his ministry? And how does this relate to the gospel and the story of Jesus? So let's dive in. Now notice the promise of the gospel, as Mark begins here, actually begins back in the Old Testament. So he tells us uh, in Mark 1, 1 to 3, you know, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So notice the beginning of the gospel is Old Testament quotes. And that might surprise some people, but if we understand the faith well, it shouldn't. Because the gospel is not completely new, but rather is built upon the story of God and humanity that has begun in the Old Testament. And so what we're doing now is we're getting the fulfillment of what has gone before. The story of the gospel and the story of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and hopes. And Mark gives us that clue right up front. I mentioned this last week. Even the word beginning harkens back to Genesis and point out what well, you can see right here. He really is continuing that way. And Mark is going to quote the Old Testament you know, saying, as it says in this book, he does that less than like Matthew does because he's predominantly writing to a Gentile audience. But he's letting us know right up front, he's orienting us saying, everything I'm going to tell you is related back to the Old Testament. Everything is a fulfillment of what has gone on in the Old Testament. And so he begins with this quote, and you may be surprised to find this out, but this quote is actually a quote from three separate passages in the New Testament that he stuck together. And I'll show you that right now. So the first thing is, I'll send my messenger ahead of you. This is actually in Exodus 23, 20. In Exodus 23, it says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. Now you may be saying, but Fred, it says an angel. 
That's because the, in both Hebrew and Greek, in Greek the word is angelos, the word actually means messenger. It only refers to the heavenly beings we think of that you know, we usually draw with the wings on their back if you specifically know that's what's being spoke of. But the word itself just means messenger. That's what an angel was, is he's a, a special messenger, an envoy that comes from God. So the word angelos is used in the New Testament sometimes just to refer to a messenger. It's very commonly, this isn't just a Bible word, in other words. It was used in Greco-Roman culture to refer to a messenger that one might send. And so here in Exodus 23, there actually is an angel. That's why they've translated it, that I'm sending an angel ahead of you. But it's actually the same word that's used here of John. Because in Exodus, what's happening is God sends his angel to go ahead of the people. And the angel is leading them out of Egypt, and he's leading them through the wilderness, and he's going to lead them into the promised land. And the gospel, when Mark begins with this little phrase, because the gospel is the new exodus. As God's people are delivered from slavery and death and are being brought into the kingdom of God. So Mark is doing this link back to the book of Exodus. And we're going to see how he keeps bringing this theme up. And he's saying, look, in the original Exodus, God had an angel. God had a messenger that went and prepared the way to bring the people of God out, bring them into the wilderness, and then into the promised land. And we're going to see the same story is going on here in Mark. The second passage that he brings up is Malachi 3.1. So in Mark it says, you know, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. In Malachi we read, see I will send my messenger, same Hebrew word, same Greek word as in Exodus 23. My angel, it's the same word. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, if you notice, Mark here says, uh, who will prepare ahead of you, because he's in essence taking it and speaking about Jesus. In Malachi, he's saying it's preparing it before me, because noticely, notice, the, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So in Malachi, what we, what we hear against the same word, God is declaring that a special messenger is going to come to prepare Israel, to prepare the way before the Lord. And when the messenger comes, when that messenger comes, the messenger of the covenant, the Lord himself, is going to show up in his temple. So the one that you've been waiting, you're going to know he's coming. You're going to know the king is arriving because there's going to be a messenger that's going to come ahead of him, and he's going to be preparing the way. And then thirdly, there's a text in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where we hear the message of this messenger is, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And so in Isaiah, the, we're told the message of the messenger, which is a special voice that cries out in the desert, and he's preparing the way, but notice he's preparing a highway for who? Our God, okay? He's preparing the way for the Lord, which is the same thing that was spoken of in Malachi. This way is being uh, prepared. You need to understand, Isaiah is prophesying about the exile. And he's telling the people, look, you had come out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. 
And then in the exile, you were sent out of the promised land, through the wilderness, out to Babylon and Persia. And now I'm telling you, I'm going to prepare a highway because you're going to come out of Babylon and Persia. You're going to go back out to the wilderness, and then you'll be delivered through the exodus back to me. So this is what's going on in Isaiah. The way is being prepared for God to come and deliver his people from exile. Now, what's interesting is you may say, well, it seems kind of weird you just pick these three random texts. Mark's not the first guy who did this. There were other Jews who had done the same thing and said these three texts are all talking about the same thing. Just like there had been an angel to deliver the people in the original Exodus, there's going to be another Exodus that's going to come and God's going to send another messenger and that messenger is going to prepare the way for the Lord and they actually said that messenger is going to be Elijah coming back again. That messenger's going to be Elijah because, you know, they said, well, Elijah didn't die. He was caught up and took off to heaven. Now, whether they're right and all that, that was what the common thought was. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah is the messenger who's going to have to come back because we're going to be delivered again. We're going to be delivered by the king. And so Mark is beginning his gospel with this theme of God's promise to deliver his people through the new and greater exodus. One of the commentators, uh, William Lane, who's got an excellent commentary on Mark's gospel, says this, Exodus 23.20 contains God's promise to send his messenger before the people on a first exodus through the wilderness to Canaan. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, the messenger announces the second exodus through the wilderness to the final deliverance prepared for God's people. In both the citation from the law and the prophets, the theme of an exodus through the wilderness is dominant and appropriate to Mark's conception and purpose. So you see what he's saying? The law and the prophets, the major things we think of as the Old Testament, he says, Mark's picking out text from both sections. He's combining them together the same ones that have been done before. He actually adds in Malachi to say, look, in the law, the hope is there's going to be an exodus for the people of God. In the prophets, the hope is there's going to be an exodus for the people of God. And in both places, it begins with a messenger who's going to take the people into the wilderness and through the wilderness into the promised land. Now, that's all there, but you might be asking the question. Some people say, well, he says it's Isaiah. Why doesn't he say, as it says in Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah, since the texts are actually Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah, and the text in Isaiah does not actually have the beginning words, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's not in Isaiah. Why does Mark attribute it to Isaiah? Number one, just for us to remember, the ancient world is not the modern world. If I'm going to quote something, I usually actually, you know, I just quoted that that was, the quote I read was from William Lane, a commentary on Mark. If I really wanted to quote it and I wrote something down, I would tell you, here's the publisher date, here's the volume, here's the exact page reference, everything else. You don't have pages like that in the Old Testament. You don't have things like that going on. So they would give much more general references in their doing it. And oftentimes what they would do is if you have a group of texts, you pick kind of the greatest. So if you're talking about a prophetic text, the greatest of the prophetic books is Isaiah. It's given pride of place. And so that oftentimes would be done. But I think there's even a greater reason why he's pointing the people back specifically to Isaiah. 
And that is a twofold thing. Number one, Isaiah has a key idea of a theme of the wilderness or the desert. Okay, the wilderness or the desert. So Exodus 23 is spoken to the people in the wilderness, but Isaiah is the one who specifically locates the messenger in the desert or the wilderness. So notice a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Coming out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. So Isaiah is the one who links that the messenger is going to be there specifically with the desert. And John, notice in verse four of Mark, John comes baptizing in where? The desert region. Now, I I wanna go ahead and point out, because this is one of the the things that we can run to, the, the word, desert and the word wilderness are the same word again in Greek. We're also going to see later in Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to keep going to quiet places to pray. Same word. Whether the word is desert because it's dry, wilderness because it's away from civilization, quiet place because it's not in the hustle and bustle of daily life, it's all the same word. It's a Greek word, uh, eremos is what the term is. And this is a key theme in Mark's gospel. And the first time we hear it is right here. So very early in these first few weeks we're going through, we're going to keep seeing themes that Mark's going to keep bringing back, kind of foreshadowing like you might see in a movie, you know, that something happens and they come back later. Well, that's what Mark is doing here. So that's the first reason Isaiah is the prophet that really focuses on the, uh, the desert, the wilderness, telling the people that, look, you're off, you're going to be in exile, but God is going to bring you back, and that means you're going to come out to the desert. God is going to call you from exile into the wilderness to take you on the exodus to the new promised land. But secondly, and just as important, Isaiah is the one who focuses on the gospel. Some people have actually done series called the gospel of Isaiah. You get The gospel is such a focus in the book of Isaiah. So four times uh, in chapters 40 to 66, which is the section of the book where Isaiah is bringing up this, this message and leading out of the new Exodus, four different times he brings up the actual term gospel. He talks about it throughout, but four times he brings up the actual term gospel. And he proclaims the good news that God is gonna deliver his exiled people enacting another great Exodus. In particular, this is where if you read in those chapters, there's this other figure, the servant of the Lord, who's going to come, and the servant of the Lord is going to bear the sins of the people, and he's going to save them. And that all begins in Isaiah chapter 40. So he's quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Just a few verses later, notice Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, this is the messenger who's going to be proclaiming. You who bring good tidings, and what is that word, good tidings? Gospel. That's the actual word, is it's the gospel. You who bring the gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings, or the gospel to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, what? Here is your God. Very similar to what's in Malachi. So the messenger is not just declaring some general message. He is declaring the gospel, and he's specifically declaring that God himself is going to come deliver you. The reason they're on the mountains is you're in exile. 
You're not where you should be. But God is coming. He's not sending someone else. In this case, it's not going to be like in Exodus 23 where it's an angel's going to go before you. No, God himself is going to come. God himself is going to deliver you. So Mark right up front wants us to know John the Baptist is not just some random guy doing things out in the wilderness. No, he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that a messenger would come to prepare the way for the coming of God to deliver and save his people. In essence, John the Baptist stands out and says, the king is coming. And that is good news for the people of God. So let's take a look at the ministry of the messenger, uh, John the Baptist. Who is he? Number one, notice that John is a man of the wilderness. So we read in verse 4, John came baptizing in the desert region. Again, the word is eremos. It's the same word uh, in Greek for desert or wilderness or, or wilderness region. And he's doing this baptism for the forgiveness of sin. So if you've ever wondered why in the desert he can do baptisms, it's because the word doesn't necessarily mean in a place that has no water in it. It, it. It's the wilderness out there in Israel is what it's talking about. And John does his entire ministry in the desert, in the wilderness, in the quiet place. We don't read anything about John anywhere other than the wilderness. And I mean, we do read in, in Luke about his conception, <laughs> And, and he's born. And then the only other thing we know is he's in the wilderness until he gets thrown in jail. That's it. That's the only thing we know about him. But secondly, notice in verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. What, what does that clothing uh, communicate? What kind of a man is he? He's a wilderness guy. I mean, Jesus himself said, you went out to hear John. What kind of, did you go out to hear a guy in purple clothes and all of this see i mean if we were going to go out and go hiking through the wilderness what kind of clothing would we wear now sometimes i go out and i see some ladies in like very sensible high heel shoes when we're out hiking in the wilderness and i'm always thinking did you not know where you were going <laughs> did you not understand this is the place where you should put on some camel hair right <laughs> and and you're going to prepare and you're going to eat locusts and wild honey and so John, by his very attire, is saying, I'm a man of the wilderness. Now, can anybody think of another character in the Bible who wore camel hair and ate locusts and that kind of stuff? Elijah in the Old Testament is dressed the same way. We're told Elijah is also out in the desert place and that Elijah, you know, he's fed various ways, but he wears the same kind of clothing that John the Baptist is wearing. So it's appropriate to where he's ministering it's also appropriate because it's a statement that you've been waiting for Elijah to come. And Jesus tells us Elijah is John the Baptist. Not, not literally that he's Elijah, but he's fulfilling the ministry of Elijah. So John the Baptist, number one, uh, acts and eats like a man of the wilderness, not the refined cities, not where the priests are ministering, not any of that, because as we're going to see, he's calling the people who think they're okay out of all of that. So he's a man of the wilderness. Secondly, John's message is to the people. He's calling them to repent and return to the Lord. 
So notice in verses 4 and 5, John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They're baptized by him in the Jordan River. So notice the whole context here is he is preaching for them to repent. Now, this is really interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, when John does this and he calls them to repent, many of the people would have said, but why do we need to repent? We're, we're Jews. We're the people of the Lord. We're the people of the covenant. And John's telling them, you remember he actually tells the Pharisees, you're a brood of vipers. <laughs> you're snakes. You're, you're not the people of God. So he's calling to them and telling them, just because you are physical Jews does not make you right with the Lord. So even though you've got a kind of picture here with the wilderness place, you all think you're okay because you're in Jerusalem, you're there with the temple, you think you're settled in the promised land. God is telling you, no, you are not where you need to be and you need to come out to the wilderness because the wilderness is the place of exodus and deliverance and you need to be delivered even though you're sitting in the promised land. So it's a strong call. Secondly, it's really amazing that when we're told he starts baptizing them. Not because baptism was unheard of. Baptism had been practiced by others. It was practiced to tell those dirty Gentiles, you need to repent, you need to get baptized so you can come into Judaism. What it was not ever done was to tell Jews they needed to be baptized. And this was so unusual, what was the name that's given to John? Yeah, John the Baptist, or literally in the Greek, it's usually John the Baptizer. That's what he becomes known as, not because nobody else has ever baptized before, but because nobody's required Jews to undergo baptism. This is a shocking thing. So when you take the two together, he's telling them, hey, you may be trusting in the fact of your physical lineage, you may be trusting in the fact that you are in the promised land and there by the temple. May I remind you, there was another generation trusted in the same thing, and they ended up in exile. And I'm telling you, you're not actually inheriting what you think you are. You need to come out, and you need to come out to the wilderness to hear the word of the Lord, to repent, to confess, to be baptized. And so what he's actually doing, therefore, is that John is requiring the people to come out to the wilderness. Notice, because one might think, if you want to reach the people of Israel in the crowds, where would you go? You would go into the city. You would go into Jerusalem. But John doesn't do that. I mean, you want to talk about not necessarily user-friendly or seeker-sensitive. John says, you've got to get out and come out here to the middle of nowhere, this long journey out to this arid desert wilderness region. But he's doing that for a very specific reason, because the people had returned from exile through the wilderness, and they're thinking, we're good. And John's saying, no, you're not. And if you want to be delivered, you've got to come back out to the wilderness. That's what happened when we left Egypt. That's what happened when we went into exile. It's what happened when we came back from exile. And I'm telling you, you're actually in exile even though you're living in Jerusalem and you're going down to the temple. You're actually in exile people. You are not home. And so he's calling them back out to the wilderness to come out and uh, repent and to acknowledge we have not known and walked with God. So this is a shocking thing for the Jews. 
And then the third thing that John is doing, and of course this is all related back to the messenger. The messenger's in the wilderness, a man of the wilderness. The messenger is calling the people out to the wilderness where the highway is being made for God. But then the messenger is pointing and saying there's someone coming. In fact, the Lord is coming. And so notice John points to the one coming after him in verses 7 and 8. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is not only not in the city where the crowds are and calling them out. When they get out there, he says, yeah, what you really need is not me. It's another guy who's coming after me. Everything I am doing is just preparatory. Everything I am doing is a symbol, but the reality is coming. And he says, notice the one that is coming after me, because uh, usually when you'd say somebody's coming after me, it meant they're less than me. It meant that they're kind of my disciple. But John's saying, no, he may be coming after me, but he's far greater than I am. So number one, he says, notice he is more powerful than me. Because the people thought of John as having a powerful ministry, and he really, really did. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Remember, Jesus actually said, no prophet has ever risen among men that is equal to John the Baptist. I mean, this guy is powerful. But John says, oh no, the one coming after me is way more powerful than me because he's actually the Lord. Secondly, notice John says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. This phrase that uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, this is a picture that if you were a slave who could be bossed around, ordered, you were owned, there were certain tasks that they said, well, this is too menial. Going down and undoing the sandals where they've been walking in the dust and, you know, burrow stuff that's dropped on the road and everything else, that's so nasty we don't even make the slaves do it. And John says, not only is he so much greater than me that I should do that, I'm not even worthy to do that. The thing that even a slave is too high to do, I can't even get to the level of the lowest slave next to this person. And thirdly, it leads to the reality of what's going on that again, John is preparatory. This one is coming and bringing the reality. John says, I baptize you with water, but he's going, to be he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is a proclamation that the long for messianic age of the new covenant was to be the age of the Spirit. The stuff in the Old Testament is types and shadows. It's preparing for the reality that comes. And it is the age of the Spirit because the Messiah is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And then he pours the Spirit out upon his people. And so the coming king is not only going to be anointed himself uh, with the Spirit, John is saying he's also going to give the Spirit to the people. And this is all over the Old Testament. I'm just going to pick out two verses. In Isaiah chapter 44, again in this whole passage where Isaiah is speaking to the exiled people and promising a new exodus, here's what he says in Exodus 44 verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. What, is it, what, what kind of terrain are we talking about here? The desert, the wilderness, okay? Out of the desert. I'm going to pour out water and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You notice the parallelism there? There's a desert parched place that needs water. I'm going to pour water out. What that water actually is, 
is the Holy Spirit. And who are the parched people that need it? Your descendants. They need the Spirit poured out on them, and I am going to do that. That's what's going to happen in the Messianic age. And I'm not going to put these up, but you can see Isaiah 32, 15 says God's going to pour His Spirit out, and the desert place will bloom. Uh, Isaiah 63, 11, and 14 specifically uses as the uh, two of only three times in the Old Testament the phrase Holy Spirit is used is in Isaiah chapter 63, where the Holy Spirit is going to be given to the people of God. One other passage is in uh, Ezekiel 36. So Ezekiel is a prophet living in exile, and he is speaking of the new covenant that is coming, and he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This was the great promise. You see what John is saying is, I'm out here and I'm doing baptism. And it's like when God said sprinkling the water on you and and cleansing you and and doing this, which water is an external symbol of, but there's a far greater reality. And that far greater reality is not an external cleansing, but rather when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you and the Spirit gives you a new heart and the Spirit comes into you and the Spirit works in you to actually follow and obey the laws of God. And this was the great Old Testament promise. And John the Baptist is the messenger coming and saying, I'm the fulfillment of that messenger. Everything that we've waited for is coming because the king is coming. And when he comes, the one you've been waiting for, everything becomes real. So it'll no longer merely be baptism in water. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be a few prophets, priests, and kings. In the new covenant, who gets the Holy Spirit? Everybody. And the Spirit rested upon Moses. Where is the Spirit in regard to you? In you, on you, upon you, covering you in every way. Brothers and sisters, you have a privilege that David and Moses and Isaiah could only dream about. And it's not for a few, it is for every believer in the new covenant. What a a miraculous thing it is to be the new covenant people of God. So how do I apply this? What does this mean to us? Two, uh, two questions and we'll come to the Lord's table. Number one, do I hear the call to repentance and confession? And I say this because many Americans are just like the Jews in the days of John the Baptist. We're, we're getting where it's less of this, but it's, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. Just like the Jews thought, well, I'm in because I'm a Jew. I'm I'm in because that's what I think. And many Americans think the same thing today. But the message is no different than what John the Baptist said. You enter the kingdom not by physical birth, not by what your parents did, not by church attendance. You enter the kingdom through repentance and confession. And the call is the same today as it was back then. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of where you are. Come out to the wilderness repent, confess your sins, be made right with 
God. It is the same message as it was then. So the question that I have for everyone, whether you're here, whether you're listening online, the the same question applies to all of us. Have I actually done this personally? Not, Not somebody else. Have I personally heard the call of God, repented of my sins, confessed my sins, and looked to God for mercy? Far too many in our day are exactly where they were in John the Baptist's day. And remember, there were plenty. You remember far later, we're going to come back in the story where Jesus is asked by what authority he does these things. Does anybody remember the question he asks in response? He says, I'll answer your question after you answer mine. What's his question? John's baptism, was that from heaven or was it from men? See, he goes right back to here. And all the Jewish leaders, oh, we're not sure how we're going to answer this. What are we going to do? And Jesus is telling them, see, you, you, you've been off the path from the beginning. When the messenger came and the messenger called you to the wilderness and the messenger called you to repent, you said, I'm comfortable where I'm at. And I think I'm okay. And so Jesus says, then I won't answer your question. You've you got to go back to that point. So have I truly done so? If you have not, I urge you, repent, confess, be baptized. It's still what God calls us to do. Talk to me afterwards. I would be glad to do that. Second question. So the first one was, do I hear the call to repentance and confession? Second one, do I hear the call to repentance and confession? I'm not stuttering. Because that call is not just for when I was an unbeliever. Do I hear the call to repentance and confession to believers? When Martin Luther first understood the gospel, one of the first things he said in the 95 Theses is the whole Christian life is one of repentance. It's not one time I repent. The whole Christian life is one of repentance. See, what we like today very much in evangelical circles is I like one and done. I like one-and-done religion. Yeah, I did it once. I remember that. Back in 1978, I repented. Okay, well, that would be good if the last time I sinned was 1978. Okay? But that's not the last time I sinned. And so the entire life, Christian life, is one of repentance. Did you hear this morning the the song Renee had picked out? And it was just a sweet time of worship this morning. I, I so appreciate our team, if you're not paying attention, Renee's from out behind the drums, out front singing. Jer's off the bass playing guitar. We had Marty was getting to do his normal position on the team here, but they're moving around. But what a sweet time of worship. And we're singing that song, Even So Come, Lord Jesus. And there was the line. I actually picked up my iPad and typed it in. Call back the sinner and wake up the saint. See the same call. Yeah, we are calling out to sinners to repent, but God is calling out to the saints to be awakened to repent, to confess. As believers, God still calls us to let the Spirit search our hearts, to repent, to confess our sins. Because see, one of the things is, David knew how precious the Holy Spirit was. You remember when he had been caught in the sin with Bathsheba and he cried out and he said, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But see, the Spirit convicts us of sin. There's times that I'd be like, I could use a little less of the Spirit's presence right now because he's convicting me. But that's what it means to have the Spirit. So at the end, we don't want that. I want the Spirit to be here. I want Him to search my heart. 
But friends, when he does, that leads to us repenting. So the question before we come to the Lord's table, is there some area where the Spirit is speaking to you right now? I I don't proclaim to know what that is. I'm not going to be the voice of the Holy Spirit. But I want to ask you in just a couple of areas, is there a specific sin I've been embracing? Some area where I've just given up. I'm just giving in and embracing it. See, I, I will walk with people through whatever sin they're struggling with. But what we can't do is say, well, God's okay with this now. The Lord made me this way. No, he did not. No, he did not. I, I was born with this propensity. It doesn't matter. That's not an excuse for me to give in with my sin. But see, there's always a temptation. I want to make peace with my sin because then I can dampen my conscience. But the Holy Spirit, I was just reading, I I do a Greek thing every day, and the one on Friday was the Spirit will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's what He does. He's a light, and He shines on us. So is there some sin I've been embracing? Or do I find my heart dull to the things of God? Do I find that it's just, you know, I'm much more excited about my football team or I'm much more excited about this new thing that I've taken up. I'm really excited about what's going on at work. It's not that any of those things are wrong. They're not. But do I find myself more in tune with that and more excited about that and the things of God are kind of ho-hum? Because if that's where I am, the, the Spirit is calling Okay, I can get in my comfort zone. Have I simply been on autopilot in my walk? It's just kind of plugged in, you know, I pick up, I read a couple of verses, I say a little prayer for somebody in my family, you know, and then I'm on my way. But, but I'm really kind of on autopilot because the Spirit calls us to the wilderness. He does. You're in Egypt, you're delivered into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. You're in exile, you're delivered into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. You're living, you know, and and you're asleep in Zion, (laughs) you're called to the wilderness. That's where deliverance happens. And so, as we come to the table, I want to encourage you to let the Spirit do His work. Now, I'm going to bring up an interesting verse we're going to put up here because today we're going to look at a table in the wilderness. In Psalm 78, it recounts, we just looked at this text when we did Psalm 95 a few weeks ago. Remember, the people are in the wilderness, and they've been thirsty, and God had given them water, and now they're hungry. And they said, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? What are the people doing here? I mean, they're testing God. They're doubting God. Because, you know, Israel doubted that God could spread a table in the wilderness, even though God had brought water from the rock before him. But see, here's the good news, and we should know this. Paul tells us that rock was Christ. And Christ was struck. And streams flowed forth. And Christ was struck. And we are fed. Christ was was struck, and we are delivered. So, 
As the Spirit calls you and me out to the wilderness, we don't need to say, but can God prepare a table for me in the wilderness? The answer is yes. There's a rich table prepared for you and I in the wilderness. The Lord will meet us, the Lord will strengthen us, and he will pour out his grace and spirit upon us. So I invite you to come to the table this morning and let the spirit speak and work in you. And as we come, if the Spirit is speaking to you regarding a specific area of sin or lukewarmness, whatever it might be, I encourage you to confess it to the Lord and let the Spirit do His work here at the table. And so we'll take just a minute to ask the Holy Spirit to do that, and then I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to call us to the table. As the Lord uh, brings to your heart or mind whatever area to confess, I encourage you to now hear God's Word in response. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Brothers and sisters, if you have confessed your sin to the Lord, if you are looking to Him and Him alone for salvation, I invite you to come to the table spread in the wilderness. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you can go ahead and take the packet, and we will take the bread first and then the cup. Father, like King David and the people coming to John the Baptist, we openly confess our sins. We do not hide our guilt, but acknowledge that we have sinned in thought, word, 
and action, in disposition and deed. But Lord, we take heart for you are a forgiving God. And you sent Jesus to bear our sin. Like this bread, he was broken so that we might be healed. And Lord, this morning as we take this bread, we receive his provision now, trusting him alone for salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, many years ago, your people scoffed and sinned, asking, can God spread a table in the wilderness? But today, we are glad to confess that we know you can. Because as the rock was struck so that it gushed water to slake the people's thirst, so our Lord Jesus was struck to provide salvation and to spread this table for us in the wilderness. In taking this cup, Lord, we turn aside from the drink and provision of the world, knowing and confessing that to feast with you in the wilderness is far better than anything the city of this world can provide. Meet us, Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and as I cry out to the Holy Spirit to freshly fill us, I encourage you to join in and cry out along with me. Holy Spirit of God, in the days of the old covenant, you rested upon a few prophets, priests, and kings. But we live in the days of the glorious new covenant, when our Lord Jesus has poured the Spirit out upon the church so that we are not only baptized with the symbol of water, but with the reality of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you thanks for this inexpressible privilege. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would freshly fill us now. Spirit of God, rise up within us and overflow. Spirit of God, fan our passion for God into a full flame. Spirit of God, open our eyes to see all the glorious provisions we have been given in Christ. Spirit of God, soften our hearts so that they are full of a desire for righteousness. Spirit of God, renew and reshape our minds so that we know and love truth, beauty, and goodness. And Spirit of God, send us forth to proclaim the beautiful gospel with those we encounter this week. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King who suffered and died so that we might live and be blessed. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, now receive the blessing of God. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. You are in Christ, so you are blessed. 
Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.